I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's open it to Acts chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading today in verse 29. We're going to back up a few verses, get a running start in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We're going to speak today concerning obedience and suffering for the name. Obedience and suffering for the name. Acts 5, 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I told you before that verse 29 and verse 41 are the two major verses that drive the theme of chapter 5. And here's 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Obedience and suffering for the name. Real, biblical Spirit-wrought Christianity is always radical and revolutionary. Always. The New Testament knows of no other way for salvation and for conversion to be explained other than through the terms of radical and revolutionary. But in our country, we have come, or we come to a Christianity that is inculturated. If you're not familiar with that term, it means that Christian teaching has been adapted by non-Christians. And that's happened in our world. They know all the lingo. They know all the, they know all the phrases. But I'd also say that not only is Christianity enculturated, but it's also domesticated. We've taken it and we have tamed it and adapted it to fit our comforts. We're guilty of that, are we not? We have domesticated the cross. And I want to remind you that the cross can never be domesticated. Can't be tamed. Can't be watered down. 
Chapter 5 in the book of Acts stands as a challenge to your pastor, and it ought to stand as a challenge to you for us to get prepared for the situation that we live in, in our culture and in our country. And I think Acts 5 and the major themes that are found there help us to go against the narrative of enculturation and domesticated Christianity and the domesticated message of the cross. Can't read Acts 5 and come away from it thinking that salvation is nothing less than radical and revolutionary. When you consider what these guys went through, the stand that they took, the suffering for the name that they endured, and yet they continued on with an incessant witness for the king. No matter what the situation was in their surroundings. So there are three principles that I think emerge from this passage that should shake us and prepare us and challenge us for the world that we live in. Now, if you know the story of the Star-Spangled Banner, you will know that Francis Scott Key was actually the fellow that wrote the words. And he wrote the words because after the capital had been destroyed in 1814, they moved, uh, the British moved on down toward Baltimore where Fort, you know, the Fort McHenry was there. And there was another incredible uh, barrage of rockets sent upon it and glaring uh, everything, everything you could imagine back in those days, just the glaring look because he was out in the harbor in a boat because he'd been restricted from going in. And he watched this from the water and thought that the British definitely had, had taken over Fort McHenry. But as the twilight came that morning... The flag that stood there was not the British flag, but the American flag. Man, that makes you patriotic, doesn't it? <clears throat> Victory. Well, I want to tell you that the bloodstained banner is more important. Because we are citizens of heaven first, not America. Our first loyalty is to the king. And our goal is to carry the bloodstained banner above all things. And I hope and pray that you see this from this text. So, in preparation... Here's what the text reminds us of. Number one, we need to let God's life-threatening holiness and the truth of the gospel characterize our evangelistic efforts. Do you see that everything about Acts 5 pulsates with an urgency to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? That is clear. There is an incessant evangelistic fervor and fire that is in these apostles. They were... Arrested to begin with in Acts 5 for preaching and teaching Jesus. They're placed in prison. They get out. And when they have this angelic Bell's bondsman get them out of prison, they were not released to go back to Galilee for safety. They were actually released with a command for a riskier obedience. And the riskier obedience was go stand right where you were and preach Jesus. Right there again in the temple. So this... Divine encouragement persists for them to witness even in the face of threats to their lives. What an awesome reminder for us. Furthermore, not only is there this incessant evangelistic fervor, but you also have the backdrop of the holiness of God. What happened in Acts chapter 5, the very first 12 verses? First 11 verses, you have the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the first recorded instance in the Bible when someone was slain in the spirit. The only problem is they didn't get up. 
As a matter of fact, they were buried. And can you imagine the spirit of fear that gripped people on the outside? Do you remember the text? They looked at the church and they were like, we dare not join this place. We're not going to join these people. Why? Because God is threatening. He's so holy that if you are a hypocrite, aren't you folks glad that he doesn't operate exactly like that today? Your pastor may not even be alive. But think, think about it. Well, he could operate that way if he wants to, right? But the fact of the matter is, the world looked in to the church, and the holiness of God was paramount. And yet there's this incessant desire to witness for the cause of Christ, and they're giving out the gospel, and they're not giving out soothing platitudes. You crucified the Lord of glory. You killed your covenant-keeping God. Man, that's in-your-face preaching, right? As Dave Adams would say, you really haven't started preaching until you say you. And you crucified him. They're not pulling any strings. They're not trying to draw a crowd. They're preaching in the light and the background of the holiness of God on one end and the truth of the gospel, the only truth that, that can penetrate a heart and change someone. Those things are wed together in this text. And as I studied this week and I saw those things, I was like, man, that's what the church needs today. We need evangelistic fervor that is tempered with the holiness of who our God is. Not easy believism, but preaching Jesus and preaching the whole counsel and preaching that God is absolutely holy. That's why you have to be saved, folks. You're not only saved and redeemed from your sins, but you're ultimately saved from God. His wrath has gone out upon you. But Jesus was the propitiation for our sins to save us. And so then you have these responses to the gospel, right? Incessant evangelism, preaching the word against the threats. You've got the holiness of God in the background. And then you've got one who responds, or some. And what do they want to do? They want to kill the mailman. They want to kill the messenger, right? They bring the gospel it is forceful, it is truthful, it's the backdrop is the holiness of God. And then people respond by wanting to kill them. This is the first time in the text that persecution is mounting, mounting, and they say, we want to kill these men. You have that kind of response of hatred because the gospel is preached. And you'll have that today in our world, won't you? When we preach the gospel. And then Gamaliel. Here is a man who steps up. He steps forward there with the Sanhedrin. He was greatly respected. He was highly esteemed among the people. He was a Pharisee. And he had a very famous student. And his student was Saul of... All right. And more than likely, I would not doubt that Paul was present. Saul was present on this day. But Gamaliel would have been in the minority. Why? Because he wasn't a Sadducee. Remember, the Sadducees denied everything, right? Uh, they were the liberals of the day, and the Pharisees were the conservatives. And he says to them, take heed what you do with these men. He was a man of incredible moderation. He gives two examples of failed messianic, faulty messianic expectations. These zealots rose up, Thutis, and it didn't take long for that to be stamped out. All the men died. He's given an example that, hey, Thutis... You may have thought he was some kind of Messiah, but did he make it? No, he didn't, and all the people who followed him. And then you've got Judas, 
the Galilean who leads the revolt, he was destroyed. And all that was persuaded by him were scattered. See the text? So leave them alone. The really, the translation is fall away from these men. Just leave these guys alone because they're probably more than likely or perhaps like Thutis or Judas the Galilean. And uh, eventually uh, it'll come to nothing and they will be destroyed. But if it happens to be from God, you won't be able to destroy them nor the movement. Now, folks, his logic is compelling and it's appealing to the Sanhedrin. And what does the Sanhedrin do? Well, they don't kill them, but they beat them. As a matter of fact, they get the 39, they get 40 minus 1. 26 stripes on the back, 13 on the front. Mark them as a lawbreaker. So, was he right? You know, when we, we're preaching the gospel out in this world, and there's this incessant desire to preach Christ, the holiness of God, and then the message of the gospel, was Gamaliel correct? Well, in one sense, he is correct. In one sense. Ultimately, he's right. But the Gamaliel principle is not a reliable principle to determine what's of God and what's not. What about the cults exploding in this world? Have they come to naught at this point? We know that Islam is growing. We know that Mormonism is growing, and usually by Southern Baptists who have left the church. JWs is growing. Numbers do not prove anything, folks. Uh, there are churches all over the, uh, claim to be, claiming to be churches all over America that are drawing incredibly large crowds that never preach the gospel. Never preach the holiness of God and never preach the gospel, yet people come. God actually has a small group of people, right? Narrow is the way. Few therein find it. So in a real sense, you can look at this in another way. Gamaliel could have easily been the deceiver on that day. Because if it was of God, and it was, you can't leave it alone. Right? It's, if it's of God, and it was, you best not leave it alone. You best follow the king. Because there's not a recorded place anywhere in the Bible where Gamaliel commits himself to Jesus Christ. So not to decide was to decide. So on this particular day, here is... The essential gospel given to him. And he doesn't accept Christ. He gives a moderate response to him that actually could have been a deceiving response. And then, of course, you have this passage shows the awesome holiness of God and which provoked fear among the outsiders and the power of the gospel which attracted those outsiders. And it was an effective witness. Folks, I'm concerned that most of the preaching or a lot of the preaching in our day without the holiness of God is a very tragic thing. Uh, I'm concerned that uh, there are many people who claim to be born again that are in our churches today and they've identified with us, but their lifestyles have never changed. As a matter of fact, they are disrepute to the name and holiness of God. Does that not, should that not cause us a concern? Because we've domesticated the Christian message so much that our churches are full of people who do not know the Lord and they think they do. We often ask people to come, get your forgiveness of sins, but we don't ask them to repent of social sins, of prejudiceness, and race, 
class and caste and gender. Nor do we ask them to repent of the sins of injustice, such as exploiting employees. We don't talk much about personal sins anymore, do we? Of lying and greed. Well, that doesn't set too well to the church, preacher. As a matter of fact, we want to be comfortable at FBCO. First Baptist Church, right? The goal is to be comfortable as an American Christian. As a matter of fact, the result has been that Christianity is so neutral on such matters that I've just explained to you. The fact of the matter is, something is wrong when we can be characterized by flagrant public sins and claim to be born again, and also trying to project and propagate a gospel that saves sinners to the ends of the earth. Something's wrong with that description, ladies and gentlemen. Here's my point. Clearly in the book of Acts, the emphasis was on the holiness of God and its implications. And it did not hinder evangelistic effectiveness of the early church. Folks, the answer to our society is not to dumb down the message. The answer to our society is preach that God is absolutely holy. And there is no way that you can make it to heaven with your sinful condition. But the king, the lamb slain for sinners, zipped came down to this earth and robed himself in human flesh and lived perfectly in obedience to the law and never one time sinned. And the God-man took your sin to Calvary so that in exchange, when you turn to him and trust him only, he robes you in a righteousness. Therefore, you are acceptable before God. And without that acceptability, folks, you're not accepted. No matter what. If you're not in Christ, then you're not accepted before the Father. Billy Graham at the International Conference for Itinerant Evangelists, once was speaking, and he told the people, he said, listen, I've made a transition in my sermon delivery and preaching, and I'm preaching more on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I hope you understand when I'm enumerating those sins, I'm not telling you that you have to quit sinning before you come to Christ. That's not what I'm teaching you. I'm telling you that you're saved by grace through faith. Okay? But you're saved by grace through faith in a salvation that works, that changes who you are. And Billy Graham had been preaching more in his mind an easy believism. But all of a sudden, he was convicted by the Scripture, and he began to preach and teach the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That means when you come to know Him, He's Lord of your life. He's Lord of every area of your life. And Billy Graham gone on, went on to say, My conversions, our conversions at our meetings have gone up. Why? Because he was preaching what the Bible says for him to preach. That God is holy. And so Carl Henry summed it up in 1948, the best I know how to say it. We must confront the world now with an ethics to make it tremble and with a dynamic to give it hope. We tremble before an awesome sovereign God, but the hope that we have is in the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. So that's the first thing I see in this text. Can y'all handle a couple more? And that is the... Holiness of God, which is clear in Acts chapter 5, wed together with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with nothing left out, that ought to, that ought to drive us in our evangelistic fervor. That ought to be up front and personal with everybody in this church. The second thing is accept our duty to obey God rather than men. Now, I hit on this last week, did I not? That the guys say in verse 29, we must obey God, in this case, rather than men. If you look back in chapter 4, you're going to have the same response. 
You judge whether it is right, they say to the leaders, but we must obey God rather than men. For the sake of time, let me just remind you that Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 are classic texts on the subject of obeying the established government. And it tells us in the Word of God that they have authority over us. And according to those two passages, God has sovereignly established government and tells us that they have authority over us. So that fundamental principle is laid down in the Word of God that we are to be in subjection to governing authorities. However, God's Word gives an exception. Right? In Acts 4.19 and Acts 5.29, and 5.29 could very well be the principal verse of Scripture in the Bible for civil disobedience. But the exception is given to us. It's a straightforward statement. The Greek actually simply says in 5.29, it is necessary to obey God rather than man. They say it is necessary. So here we have a principle of disobedience to man. So in summary, if the church or the state or any other entity forbids us from doing something that God has told us to do or vice versa. God has told us not to do something, but the government says you are to do it. What are we called by God to do? Obey God. Right? Jesus taught that, did he not? Give me a coin. What are you going to do with that coin? Well, render unto but unto God what is God's. We have, a, we have an allegiance to our country, but we have a devotion to Jesus. We first obey the Lord. Do we have biblical precedent? We can play Old Testament, name that tune, right? Exodus chapter 1, the midwives are told to kill all the Hebrew babies. It was a legal edict. Pharaoh commanded it. But not only did the midwives save the Hebrew babies, they actually lied to Pharaoh to do it. And God blessed them. Why? Because God's law was more important than Pharaoh's. Enough said, right? In Daniel chapter 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known to you as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the reason I say that is because the first three names are names of God. The last three are names of false gods. So I like to refer to them as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But they're told to bow down. At the sound of the trumpet. You're going to bow down to this image of gold. Did they bow? No. Brother John, do you remember Jerry Vine's sermon at San Antonio, Texas in 1989? Jerry Vine said they wouldn't bend. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't bend. And they wouldn't burn. Well, that's good preaching, isn't it? And they did. And what an awesome, awesome illustration of this principle. We're not going to bow down. If you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been before. But they refused. And what a great, courageous statement. King, whether God delivers us or not, we will not bow down to the image. They didn't bow down. They paid for it. But God delivered. Now, move on in the text. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is told, signed, edict, uh, Medes and Persians. Uh, Darius, you're going to be God for a month. No one can pray to anybody except you, a man. And Daniel, the Bible says, as was his custom, went into his room and he opened his windows toward Jerusalem and he prayed to Yahweh. In direct contradiction to what he had been told to do. Can you imagine being a lion in that den, knowing full well you're not going to eat on that occasion? Right? And God delivers them So he defied the laws of men in order to obey God. In the book of Acts, we're seeing it 
Time after time in the Word of God, they said, we're going to obey God more than men. We're going to obey God first and primarily, men and women. Uh, This has been uh, the church since the first and second century. They were told they must say, Caesar, Kyrios, or Kyrios Caesar. Uh, Caesar is Lord. Now understand, this was a political thing from the Romans. They didn't really care who you worshipped. Didn't matter if you worship Jesus. The political game was we don't. They were they had a pluralistic society, so it wasn't the big deal of saying Jesus is Lord. That's fine as long as you say Caesar is Lord, right? But Christians refused to burn incense and refused to say Caesar is Lord. Rather, they said Curios Asus, Jesus is Lord, and they refused to say Caesar is Lord. And what happened to them? Thrown in lions' dens killed for the cause of Christ because they would not bow down. The consensus is that through the centuries, Bible-believing Christians will say Jesus Christ is Lord, even if politically we end up paying for it. There's a price to pay. To do what is right in obeying God and defying man will always bring suffering, but it will ultimately bring God's blessing, right? So not only the holiness of God and and the gospel and evangelism, but accepting our duty to obey God. And here's the last thing. Joyfully choose to suffer for his name. One of my greatest verses in the Bible. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. Incessant evangelistic witness. Teaching and preaching Jesus right through the middle of of suffering. You know what it's like? Uh, have you read what it means to have those lashes 40 minus 1? 39 of them, 26 on the back, 13 on the front. Why do they do this? Well, you know, it was, it was more like that cat of nine tails with your lead or your glass on the ends of all of those different tentacles that came off that instrument when it would hit you across your back and pull all your flesh off. Think about this for a moment. This is not just a little bitty beating. This is severe beating. Some people died from, 30, from 40 minus 1. And this is the way these guys are beaten. It would leave permanent scars. When they would take off their shirt, they would see 26 on the back, 13 on the front, and they would be able to say immediately, lawbreaker. It identified them for the rest of their lives. For the apostles, though, it was literally bearing the marks for Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I mean, is this not challenging to you and me when we sit in the comfort of the United States of America in a casual Christianity? Does it not just grip you a little bit? I'm not telling you to go get hit 39 times with a, with a cat of nine tails. You may. You may, but it's our mentality that I'm trying to help you swim against. The mentality of what it means to follow Jesus and to serve Him. And here are men joyfully choosing to suffer for the name of Christ and they're suffering like the text says. Permanent scars. And as they leave the presence of the Sanhedrin, the 70 plus 1 men, they leave considering themselves worthy to have suffered for the name of Jesus. They're rejoicing. Counted themselves worthy. What does that mean? To be counted worthy. Well, it has nothing to do with their inherent worth as people. Get that out of your mind. It's a mark of dignity and acceptance before God. That when God looked at them on that day and on that occasion, they valued him more than anything else in life. 
So when you value Jesus more than anything else in life, you're counted worthy by him. Ah, amazing. In the case, in this case, their value, they're valuable, or in this case, the valuable something is the name of Christ. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? To suffer shame for the name and to be honored for it. That, that doesn't sit well with us, does it? It's an oxymoron. It's, how do you gain glory from suffering for a name? That's exactly what's happening in this text. They counted the name of Jesus worthy. So God counted them as worthy. Awesome. They leave rejoicing. Their faith in God was real and ready to be proved. And notice the grammar. Counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of the name. Amazing. They did it for the person and the character and the worth and the work of Jesus. They were showing through their suffering the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. That he was greater than anything else in life. Now folks, we struggle there, don't we? We struggle valuing Jesus as primary, the, the, the primacy of the value of Jesus, we struggle with that in the United States of America big time, don't we? Because there are so many things on the plate. So many things that distract us away from that. I think what we really need is a good, heavy dose of persecution. So preacher, don't ask that for us. We like it the way it is. You know that the church has always been a suffering church. America is an exception. It's an anomaly. It's never happened in the history of the world where we were not, the church wasn't a suffering church. This is not the age of the church's glory, I want to remind you. It's the age of the cross. One of these days, we will have the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. But right now, this is the age of the cross. The cross precedes the crown. Shame precedes the glory. The true church is a suffering church. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3.1. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We have been predestined for suffering and affliction. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 3.12. This verse cuts. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh! All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. How many of you desire to do that? If you do, and I do, and we live that way, we will be persecuted. That's a promise from the Word. All who desire to live godly in this world, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. You can't read anywhere in the Word of God and get the idea that the church has some kind of political glorious triumph in this world. But that's what we want, right? We want a Republican in that office. But we're in danger, folks, sometimes. We might get the right man in office, but we may get the wrong Christ. And friends, we're in trouble if we get the wrong Christ. We're in trouble. Hey, I'm a, I'm a southern boy. I'm from Georgia. You know it? I, I have all of the uh, political, uh, patriotic, all that stuff's down inside of me. I, can't, I look at that American flag out there with a brother having it on. I'm like, yeah. It, it, just, it, it really tears against my nerves to see somebody not stand up for the Star Spangled Banner, right? But you know what? Those people don't. Most people don't know Jesus. Folks, it's not us against them. You were them. We've got to take the gospel. The blood-stained banner is the only thing that can change a heart. 
it, there's going to be people in glory, folks, that doesn't have uh, American nationality. As a matter of fact, the greatest evangelism that's taking place in this world today is in China. More people are being saved there right now than anywhere in the world. And they're not Americans. I'm just reminding you that the church is a suffering church. And let me give you a couple things. We sit here, and there's a lot of easy believism in, with Western affluence, and yet the Bible on every page has a missionary theology of suffering. On every page, there's a missionary theology of suffering. So why is it that God wants us to suffer? Number one, it reminds us that suffering for Christ and the gospel brings a greater reward. Y'all read this lately? It's in the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Who's saying this? Listen to this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Just chalk it up. When you're persecuted, greater is my reward in heaven. Right? For the name of the Lord. So Jesus Christ, when he's your all-satisfying joy, he's the most valuable thing in your life, God is always gain. God is always gain. So we suffer. Why? Because greater is our reward in heaven. Secondly, it helps us proclaim the message of Christ's suffering for our salvation. Y'all do know, folks, that we connect the dots of his glory through suffering. None of us do too well serving the Lord when we got a bank account that's full. Bursting out of the seams. Everything's going great in life. Boy, when we're comfortable in Zion, we don't usually keep our focus on the Lord too well. It takes a little bit of adversity, a little bit of difficulty in life for us to begin to focus where we should focus to begin with. Right? Deuteronomy 8, the Lord reminds the Israelites, when you get into this land, you best not forget the Lord your God who brought you here. Got all this land flowing with milk and honey, you better not forget the Lord. And that's exactly what they did. But the suffering... Do, have you ever stopped to think that suffering is a gift from God? And the Bible says that. We have all been called to suffer for His name. Have you ever considered that that's how the gospel is propagated? That's how the gospel is proclaimed in this world? is through our suffering. In Acts chapter 9, the Lord says to Ananias, we're going to get there one day, right? We're just in chapter 5, but one day we'll get to Paul's conversion. But Ananias... For I will show you how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Before, uh, as the Lord knocked Paul, Saul off his horse and he got up being Paul, right? Think about this. The Lord's goal for him in his life was that Paul would take the gospel to the ends of the earth and he would suffer for the name of Jesus. I will show him how much he will suffer. I don't know about you, but that, that doesn't sit well in my American domesticated Christianity. That Paul was saved for this purpose. And Jesus says, I'm going to show him how much he will suffer for my name. And that's what he does. Paul is not speaking. Oh, listen to this verse. Paul says, now I rejoiced in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, is Paul saying that he's given an atonement or a propitiation to save anybody? Absolutely not. What is he talking about? He's talking about the propagation of the gospel. He's talking about giving the gospel to the ends of the earth together with suffering 
That's the way that the gospel will spread worldwide. Paul says, through my suffering, I'm making up what is lacking. In other words, he's certain what he's suffering for. My sufferings promote and propagate the, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that there are millions of Muslim martyrs who are willing to die for hate? And boy, it scares the life out of us, doesn't it? And it should, because they're willing to die for hate. There are millions of Muslim martyrs. There's no doubt that one of the things that stuck in Saul of Tarsus' mind was the martyrdom of Stephen. We're going to get to preach that in a few weeks too. Chapter 7 of Acts, right? There's no doubt. Who was standing by when Stephen was martyred? Yeah, he was holding the cloaks. You understand? There's no question. If you trace the New Testament, you're going to find out that Paul mentions this numerous times in the book of Acts. When he witnessed... Stephen dying for the cause of Christ. You could not find a Muslim alive today that was more hardened and hate-filled against Christianity than Saul of Tarsus. Aren't you thankful God saved that guy? He saved him and he can save others. So suffering for the cause of Christ is evangelistic. It promotes the message of Jesus Christ. And folks, I'm just asking you here today, the question is, are you living in such a way To prove the valuableness of Jesus Christ in your own life. Not telling you to go over into a Muslim country and share the gospel. God may call you to do that. But what are we doing with that valuableness of Christ here today, right now? I mean, these guys were willing to die for the value of Jesus. What are we doing for him today? If we could not, if we were told right now, you cannot come to this church and meet tomorrow and worship Christ, would you come and bring your family? How many faces would show up at this church if we were told by the government, you cannot come to this church and worship Jesus Christ tomorrow? I don't know what y'all going to do, but I'm coming. And I'm actually going to get up here and preach. And they have to take me to jail, but I'm going to do it. You know why? Because he's that valuable to me. I don't have a choice in the matter. I'm going to do it. I mean, how many of us would put our families in harm's way for Jesus Christ and how much we value him Right now, today. Boy, we have to stop and think, don't we? Folks, I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm not making this up. The problem is we're so westernized. We're so, we've so domesticated Christianity. We've emasculated Christianity. We really have. And so the issue is, which of us will be willing to do this? To value Jesus Christ and His kingdom and refuse to be closet Christians? Refuse to be that. Again, in a lot of circles, I'm trying not to be condemnatory, but in a lot of circles, it's just the American way of life with a few scriptures thrown into the mix. And we call that purpose and joy. Is that not true? If we're honest, that's what a lot of Christianity looks like. And folks, I'm telling you, that kind of Christianity is not powerful enough to convert anybody. Just... just, uh, Oh, man, uh, God's got a plan for my life. I, I've been forgiven. I'm doing good. I have peace. Who would not want that? But do you know Christ, and are you following him? Is he your Lord? Uh, the, the Scripture knows nothing other than a radical, revolutionary conversion and transformation from being dead to alive. That's what real salvation is. There are a lot of converts to what's going around today, but it's life with the root torn out of it. And folks, if you don't have the root, 
in the holiness and person and work of our God in saving our souls, then you don't have true Christianity. I want to remind you that the Christianity we teach and preach is the Lamb of God slain for sinners. Right? That's not a popular message for the world. You know, our attitude sometimes, you know what, if God really exists, I just win double. I've had real fun in America. I've got, I'm living the American dream. And if God exists, we win double. In a lot of places, we could take God and the cross and the resurrection out of the message and people would never miss it. And that's a shame. Our, our Christianity should be so radical that if there is no God, we're the biggest fools in the universe. Somebody did say that. You know who he was? Paul. Paul said, if Christ is not risen, we are men most pitiable. We ought to be the most pitied people in all the world if Christ is not risen. But I'm telling you, folks, he is. He is risen. He is alive. Amen, sisters. Preach it, right? Paul doesn't say, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, don't worry about it because we've lived a pretty good life. Folks, we live so much so often in our belief in Christ that it's nothing to be pitied by the world nor to be admired by the world. That needs to change. It needs to start with me. Right? Everybody in here. Our form of Christianity should be a form of Christianity in America that is radical. And Paul says, if Christ is not risen, we ought to be pitied. Right? All right, one more verse and we're done. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 12. Listen to the word. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now here's what God calls you to do. Y'all listening? I'm going to stop if you're not listening. Is everybody on page? Are you listening? Here it is. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Can y'all connect the dots? Bear reproach that he endured. Let me tell you what the camp is, outside the camp is. It's not safe. It's not safe outside the camp. But God's called you because Jesus Christ saved you by his own blood and suffered to do so. He's called you to go outside the camp bearing reproach for his name. Hallelujah. We need that at this church. Incessant witness evangelistically, holding high the holiness of God and preaching the truth of the gospel. We need to accept our duty to obey the Lord. Right? More than man. And then joyfully choose suffering for His name. The time's coming, folks, in the near future where you're going to have to choose. Obedience to God or obedience to man. Which one are you going to do? Are you prepared? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day we've had and your scriptures, Lord, and how you spoke to my heart this week. Lord, I know that these words are foreign to us. And Lord, a lot of it's our own fault. Lord, in so many ways, pastors, Lord, we're guilty. Uh, Lord, we're guilty so often of being caught up in the American dream and the American way. But Lord, what we're learning is from your word that, uh, Lord, uh, the Bible way is often not the American way. And Lord, my, my prayer is that, Lord... I know this is heavy stuff, and, and we, we stand aloof and, and away from suffering. We don't, we don't know what that's like. To suffer for us means to come to church when we don't feel well. Lord, we don't really know what it's like. Lord, we're guilty, and we know this. 
But God, we're asking you more than anything else in listening to this sermon that we value Jesus more than anything else in life. That we value Him more than Paul and hunting and fishing. Lord, and even family. That we value Jesus supremely above all things. God, help us today, Lord, in this time of invitation to do some introspection. Lord, to think about where we are with you and think about the gospel that we believed, staked our lives upon. Lord, would you work in our invitation? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.